0: The former American president, Woodrow Wilson, was once asked what the greatest honor had been in his life. Without hesitation, he replied, surprisingly, the greatest honor in my life, he said, was to be an elder in the Presbyterian church. Now, Wilson had been the president of the United States. He had been the most powerful man in all the world. And yet he said that he considered the task, the role of being an elder as the most significant role that he had in his life. In his first letter to Timothy, a letter about building a healthy church the Apostle Paul affirms that high view of eldership. While the world will misunderstand it, while some within the church may at times disregard it, Paul believed that eldership is and always should be regarded as a noble task. That's what he called it, a noble task. And it is because the task is noble That the kinds of men who are called to do the task must be noble men, as we will see in Paul's writing. So would you turn with me this evening to 1 Timothy, this letter that we've been studying, 1 Timothy and chapter 3 tonight. It's one of the few places in the New Testament where specifically we focus on elders and also deacons. We'll come to deacons next week. But we're going to make a start with eldership. Paul has, of course, just dealt in chapter 2 with some in the church who were usurping authority. And now it's no accident, in chapter 3, Paul begins to set the proper lines of authority in the church in terms of elders and deacons. So what does Paul have to say about the men who would be elders? 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 1. Here is a trustworthy saying. Whenever Paul says that, he's going to say something important. Here is a trustworthy saying. If anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, the overseer must be above reproach. The husband of but one wife, temperate, self controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may become conceited and fall into the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders, so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. Amen. I'm struggling with a sore throat tonight, so stick with me. It sounds worse than it feels. Now, tonight's sermon is not a sermon for 13 men only. I want to assure you of that as we begin That this sermon, while it is about elders, it is not simply for elders. And I'm really taking my cue in this from, I believe, the Apostle Paul himself. Because when Paul was writing this letter of 1 Timothy to his protege, this young pastor, Timothy, it wasn't that Paul wanted Timothy to restrict this teaching simply to elders, it's not as if he says at the beginning of this third chapter, now Timothy, sit the elders down and give the elders this teaching about eldership. Instead, rather like the rest of the letter, Paul's assumption is that he will pass this teaching on to Timothy, who will in turn disseminate it to the whole church. And if we think about it, this is of course a very apt that this would be the case regarding eldership. It is the whole church, of course, who ultimately keep the eldership accountable. We will come to this in later weeks. In chapter 5, Paul speaks of some members of the church bringing a charge against an elder. The whole church ultimately keeps the elders accountable, even though the elders lead the church forward. And therefore, the whole church must understand the standards and the qualifications for eldership. Moreover, it is the case, not only in Charlotte Chapel, but in many churches, that it is the congregation in its totality who elect elders, who appoint elders. It just so happens that we have an eldership election coming up next year. Wouldn't it be good for us all to understand what the qualifications are for eldership? And as it happens, in God's providence, I'm sure it hasn't escaped your notice that in just a few days' time, we have an upcoming vote regarding a senior pastor who is an elder, essentially, within the context of this church. Now, how will we know what the qualifications are? How will we know what the bar is, what the standards are, unless we come to Scripture together and ask what God would say to us Are those standards? And so with that in mind, I trust you will see this as a relevant study, whoever you are this evening. And if you've closed your Bibles, please reopen them to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Now I want to suggest that Paul here in this section outlines a number of qualifications for elders. I'm going to simplify it by grouping them together into five. Essentials for elders, five essentials for elders, five qualifications without which no man should be an elder in the church. The first qualification in verses two and three is that he must have an irreproachable character, an irreproachable character. By the way, can I say before you switch off to, if you're just an ordinary member of the church? Three out of five of these qualifications, including this one, should be aimed at by every Christian in the church. This qualification is expected of elders, but it is encouraged of all members. An irreproachable character. In verse 2, Paul says, Now the overseer, or the elder, must be above reproach. To reproach, in Paul's day, carried the idea of laying the hand of blame on, ...on someone. We still have traces of this in some of the way we talk today. We talk about laying the hand of blame on someone. We perhaps talk about getting our hands on the criminal... ...who is still at large. And this was the idea in Paul's day... ...that people could be reproachable. You could lay your hand on their shoulder... ...with some charge of blame or of guilt. And yet here is Paul saying... ...that the overseer in the church must be above or beyond reproach. He must be the kind of man who is beyond the grasp of public accusation. He's not the sort of fellow whom the crowd or the congregation can easily or readily lay a charge upon. True before God, he is not sinless. He is not a sinless man. No Christian is a sinless man or woman. But he is a blameless man. He is a blameless man. He is a man in whom there are no glaring faults. He is a man in whom there are no fundamental flaws. Such as everyone could see, this flaw would debar him from eldership. This flaw would discredit him in terms of fulfilling the noble task that eldership is. Now if we say, Paul, what do you mean when you say, that he must be irreproachable. Could you get a little more specific? I want to suggest to you that what Paul does next is enumerate a number of ways in which the elder must be irreproachable. There are six of them, and we'll just skim them very briefly. First of all, he must be irreproachable in his marital fidelity. He must be, says Paul, the husband of one wife. He must be A one-woman kind of man. How many men have fallen at just this hurdle? An elder should be a man whose eyes do not wander, whose tongue does not flirt, whose heart is undivided and devoted wholly to his wife. He should be irreproachable in the sight of everyone in terms of his relations with the opposite sex. He should be irreproachable also in his self-mastery. There are three things grouped under this heading. You see in verse 2, an elder should be temperate. That means he should be level-headed. Even in the face of pressure, he should be level-headed. He should be self-controlled, an able manager of his emotions and impulses. He's not easily overwhelmed by the feelings that well up inside him. And then thirdly, Paul says that he must be respectable i.e., it should be obvious to everyone else that he's temperate and self controlled. He's respectable in the sight of others. And then, thirdly, he must be irreproachable in his hospitality. He must be hospitable, or literally, he must have a love for strangers. I, I love that rendering of it. He must have a love for strangers. An elder is a man who has a heart for the outsider and whose home is regularly open to welcome them in. And he must be blameless, fourthly, in terms of his sobriety. Not given to drunkenness, verse 3. Elders should be men who are irreproachable in their use of alcohol. And then they must be blameless in their gentleness. And elders should be not violent, but gentle, verse 3. Not quarrelsome, an elder is not a man who strikes out. That's what it means to be violent here. He's not a man who strikes out. He's a man in whose presence you always feel safe. An elder is a man who is respected, but he is never feared. He is a man who instructs you, but he does not seek to intimidate you. He may disagree with you, but he is never disagreeable. Someone has quaintly put it like this. Gentleness is the elder's approved style. And then last but not least, Paul adds that an elder should be irreproachable in his stewardship. Not that he cannot be a possessor of money. He certainly will be a giver of money and an example of that. But an elder must not be a lover of money. And so in all these ways, Paul says an elder's character must be irreproachable. Nobody in the congregation, nobody out with the church should be able to point at any one of these six things and say, there is a significant problem here. There's a significant issue in this man's character in terms of these basic lines of integrity. You know, the tragedy was, and I think this is why Paul majors on character here, the tragedy was that in Ephesus, there had been men in the leadership who could be blamed in some of these areas. We find in chapter 6 that Paul speaks of some in the church who had stock and standing, and yet Paul says these teachers had not been beyond reproach. He says that they are conceited men. He says that they were quarreling men, men of corrupt mind, men who loved the rub of the green, who used godliness as a means of financial gain. And Paul's writing now to this church with these men who have recently left, and he's saying, don't let those kinds of men back into your leadership. Eldership is a character profession. Eldership is a character profession, first and foremost. Can I say to those of you who are elders, and indeed anyone who is a leader within the context of the church, that who you are is more important than what you do. You can do certain things in the church badly, and no one's going to get hurt too much. It may be incompetent the way you do your job, but that's all it will be. But if your character is flawed, then everything is lost. Everything is discredited. Members, can I submit to you that as you consider elders, their character should be the first thing you consider. More than their abilities, more than their leadership skills, more than all the things that we often look at from a human perspective. Last year, I had the privilege of visiting a church in the United States. And for the weekend, we had a behind-the-scenes look at the church. It might not seem very exciting to you, but the first thing we did was sit in on an elders' meeting. And at that elders' meeting, there was a man there who was being considered for eldership. The elders were vetting the man. They were going to hopefully propose him to the congregation for their vote. And I'll never forget, at the end of the meeting, this man sort of interacted throughout the process. It all went well with him being there. But they turned to him, and they started asking him a series of very uncomfortable questions. For example, they asked him, Can you tell us us about your hospitality over the last three months? Who have you invited into your home? We couldn't believe that they asked him that. They also asked him something, I can't remember the exact wording, but something like this. Do you have issues with lust? Lusting after other women, or are you wholly devoted to your wife? Do you have significant issues with that? And as we were thinking, who gave him the right? It suddenly dawned on us, Paul did. Paul did right here in 1 Timothy 3. irreproachable character must be established. Now, a second elder essential is not only that a man have irreproachable character, but secondly, that he be an able teacher. Look at the end of verse 2. The overseer, says Paul, must be able to teach. Able to teach. It's snuggled in there among the character qualifications, but I want to just bring it out and set it forth right before you because this is the one ability, The one skill, so to speak, amongst the character qualifications that Paul highlights. A church elder must be able to teach the scriptures. As a shepherd of the flock, which the elder is, he must be able to feed the flock. So that's the reason. You're not a good shepherd if you can't lead the sheep to pasture where they feed. And I think if you turned over to Titus uh, chapter 1 you would see there Paul unpacking this phrase, able to teach. He's addressing elders also in Titus chapter 1, but he expands on, on what he says in, in Timothy. And he says this is what able to teach means. He must, Titus 1, nine. he must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. There are... Within that, two essential aspects of teaching, according to Paul. On the one hand, an elder must be able to encourage people with sound doctrine. Now, that presupposes that an elder needs to know doctrine, doesn't it? He needs to know doctrine. He needs, it's not just the Peter Grangers that need to know doctrine. It's every elder needs to know doctrine. But he not only needs to know doctrine, he has to understand what is sound doctrine what is sound what is wholesome what is biblical and he must not only know what is biblical doctrine but he must understand how he can apply that doctrine to pastoral situations so if there is a marriage situation and there's a a, a breakdown between a, in a couple's relationship he doesn't just start counseling them with the kinds of things that you find in secular marriage books about improving their communication or whatever it is. He he knows how to apply biblical doctrines to the situation. He can speak to them about how human sinfulness and depravity is actually at the root of the problems they're having in their marriage. He can apply the doctrine. He knows how to speak to people struggling with sin about how grace applies. He can talk about the resurrection body with those who are growing weary and growing old or who are bereaved. He can take doctrine, he can take truth, and he can apply it to your situation in your front living room. He can encourage by sound doctrine, that's the first thing, but he also, with gentleness, notice, can refute those who oppose it. And so as he's sitting there and he, he recognizes from what you are saying, that it is not sound doctrine that you are thinking and believing and speaking of, he can gently correct you. He can point you back to the Scripture, and he can show you what the Scripture truly says. Every elder should be able to do that. Now, I don't think this is to say, therefore, that every elder must teach publicly within the church. If that were the case, Paul would have added something here, wouldn't he? He would have added something. He would have said that an elder must be able to teach publicly or an elder must be able to teach to large groups. But Paul doesn't say that. All he says is elders must be able to teach. Whether in pulpit or in private, whether in the hall here or in your home, he is able to get the Bible open and talk to you from it. He he can bring a word in season. Mark Dever summarizes the elder should be known by others in the congregation as a man to whom people can go in order to have the scriptures explained to them i think that's what paul is saying so he's an able teacher he has an irreproachable character and then thirdly and the bar continues to be quite high thirdly he must be an accomplished home manager this is the third essential. He must, says Paul in verse 4, manage his own family well. You could translate this, manage his own household. And in that sense, this has a, a broader remit than we might otherwise think if he was simply saying manage his family. He's not just talking about his relationship with his wife and his two children here. The household back in, in these days uh, involved more than just the close nuclear family it would involve very often slaves so the this man would have workers employees within his house whom he would have to manage and whom he would have to govern moreover the family business was very often run from the home the whole family were involved in the trade and so here is this man managing the business within the context of the home So when Paul speaks of running the household well, he's talking about this whole range of responsibilities, including the finances, including the business, as well as the family situation. But then Paul uh, focuses in on one very important test of the man's ability to manage his household, namely his parenting skills, how he manages the children. Sometimes I feel in my own experience you can sort of manage everything else except the children. That's the hard bit. And Paul says that he must see that his children obey him with proper respect. And the elder must be a man who is able to care for and to command his own children. The reason says Paul is obvious because if anyone doesn't know how to manage his own family well... How can he take care of God's church if a man is incapable of marshalling his own little troop? How is he going to marshal a much larger family in the situation of the church? John Stott puts it this way, the pastor is called to leadership in two families, his and God's, and the former, the home, is to be the training ground for the latter, And so if a man has a family, of course he may not, he may be a single man, or he may be married without children at a particular point. But if he has a family, we must take that into consideration as we consider him for eldership. We can think of some bad examples of this in the Old Testament, unfortunately. You remember Eli the priest, Eli the servant of God. And the sad fact was that while Eli was down there at the temple every day, while he was fulfilling all his duties in and around the temple, while everyone was very impressed with his public duties, his boys were out of control. You remember that? He had two sons. And 1 Samuel 3 verse 13 says that one of the reasons these sons were so immoral, so greedy was that Eli had failed. To restrain them. He couldn't control his children. Eli may have been a priest. But he could never have been an elder. In the church. Failure at home. Means disqualification. From eldership. I I once heard of a man actually. Who stepped down from eldership. Because in his home situation. At a particular juncture. He recognized things were getting out of hand. And he felt that it simply would not be right for him to continue managing God's household while his own household was in chaos and confusion. So, an elder must be an accomplished soul manager, he must be an able teacher, he must have an irreproachable character. Fourthly, Paul says in verse 6 he must be an experienced believer. He must be an experienced believer. Now, I am putting here in the positive what Paul actually puts in the negative. I'm being a little cheeky here. Three times in this passage, you maybe notice this, Paul says positively that an elder must be this, must be that, must be the next thing. But on one occasion, Paul says that an elder must not be something. He must not be something. Verse 6, he must not be a recent convert he must not be, if I can paraphrase, an immature Christian. If we're to flip it on his head, he is saying that an elder must be an experienced believer, not a novice, not a beginner, someone who has walked with Jesus for some significant time, someone who is significantly mature in their faith so that their appointment to eldership will not go to their heads. That says Paul is the danger of too quickly elevating a young convert. It is pride. He may become conceited, Paul says in verse 6, and fall under the same judgment as the devil. You remember what happened to the devil, don't you? That when he was elevated in his status, it, it went to his head. And in his case, pride came before a fall. And Paul says that same danger could be in line for a young convert if you quickly usher them up the ladder into the perilous heights of eldership. Don't elevate a young Christian upward, says Paul, until they have had time to grow downward in humility. That's very sane advice, isn't it? Advice that needs to be especially heeded in situations where there's a bit of a leadership vacuum in a church, when the nearest young, promising, gifted, yet recently saved young man is quickly grabbed by the collar and propelled into leadership. Paul says, don't do it. There could be catastrophic consequences. Now, is this to say, does Paul mean, therefore, that younger men are always barred, from eldership, Some of you may be wondering that. And I think here we need to be balanced, and we need to not go beyond what Scripture is saying. On the one hand, it is true that the word elder was often used of the overseer. In the New Testament, overseer and elder are speaking of the same office, but they're emphasizing different things. And certainly the term elder... When it is being used, probably part of the connotation of that originally was that the elders tended to be older men. Elders tended to be elderly. And probably more mature because of that. At the same time, it seems to me to be adding to what Scripture says to suggest that a man must necessarily be in his 50s, 60s, or or even 70s to be considered to be an elder. It seems to me that what Paul is stressing is not that a man shouldn't be recently born in his 20s or 30s, but that he should not be recently born again. That's Paul's point. You see, in this sense, you can get some strange anomalies, can't you? Over here, you have a man in his 60s. He has extensive life experience. He would probably bring much in terms of his skills to the office of an elder, but he's completely inappropriate. Why is he inappropriate? Because he's only been a Christian one year. He's a recent convert, even though he's chronologically old. We can't consider him yet. Over here, on the other hand, you've got this guy in his mid-thirties. What on earth is he doing in eldership? The reason is, he's been walking with the Lord since he was about age two. And he's grown in his faith and even by the time that he is 35, young as he is in years, he is already mature in the faith. So an elder must have irreproachable character. He must be an able teacher. He must be an accomplished home manager. And then this fourth thing, he must be an experienced believer. And then fifthly and finally this evening, he must be an esteemed neighbor. Verse 7, he must be an esteemed neighbor neighbor. You see, it's really no use having a good reputation within the church if your name is mud out with the church. An elder must also, says Paul in verse 7, have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. The devil longs to trap elders. That's what Paul is saying. He longs to trap elders. How? By making them think that they can live one way inside the church and another way out with the church. An elder, however, should be a man whose non-Christian work colleagues you could speak to and get a positive reference. They would have good things to say about this man. He's not one thing in the church and another in the workplace. He's the kind of man at whose funeral you will likely find a sizable number of non-Christians present. They may not have shared his faith, but they did respect his walk. That's what Paul is getting at when he says, an elder must have a good reputation with outsiders. You know, on Wednesday night, we were talking about mission family tonight. We were hearing about Andrew McCabe. Andrew has been a serving missionary in India for over 50 years. And we heard that recently he has been given uh, essentially the freedom of India. That such has been his humanitarian work, such has been his gospel work. The authorities are so impressed by this, they've given him a visa to come in and out of the country as he wishes, whenever he wishes. Incredible, isn't it? There is a man who has built up a respectable reputation with outsiders. He's not just respected in the church, he's respected in the world. And I think in this and bringing us back to what Peter was saying last week, in this Paul continues to have this gospel evangelistic world focus. We see here that Paul isn't just concerned with eldership, with the internal affairs of the church. He is ultimately concerned that the gospel would be commended in the life of its leaders. You know, maybe you're you're here this evening and you're not a Christian. And maybe you've been sitting thinking to yourself, I've got no idea how the subject of eldership has any bearing or relation to me. Here is the significance of it to you. God wants the leaders within his church to be such blameless men, to be such holy men, that their lives, their reputation, would commend the gospel to you. I mean, how often do you hear people say that they would be a Christian if it were not for the lives of Christians? That Christians say one thing with their mouth and they live another thing with their lives. And God is concerned that the lives of the leaders of the church would commend the truth of the gospel of Christ to you. That you would see in the lives of your elders something that is blameless, that would commend to you someone who was not merely blameless, the Lord Jesus, but who in fact was completely sinless. That you would see Jesus in them. The one who died on the cross for your blame. Who died on the cross for your shame and for your sin and for my sin. I believe with all my heart, if you're not a Christian, that you need to believe that message tonight. To be saved, to be secure for eternity. But I also believe, that unless the leadership of not only this church but other churches live commendable lives, then that will be a significant spanner in the works for you. And so as we conclude, a reminder of these standards as Paul outlines them, the elders, the elder must have an irreproachable character. He must be an able teacher, he must be an accomplished home manager, he must be an experienced believer, and he must be an esteemed neighbor. In many ways, as I've said, these are standards, most of them, that are to be aimed at for all Christians. It's not as if the elders need to be not violent but gentle and the rest of you can go out and punch and kick, you know, the dog and the children. All of us need to aim at being irreproachable. All of us need to aim at being respected by outsiders. But, oh, this is expected of elders. So would you please pray for your eldership. Pray for the men who take up this noble task in this church. And please appoint men, appoint men who fit these criteria, not other preferences that you may have, but these criteria. And if you are an elder tonight, then not only aim at these high standards, but can I say to you, encourage yourself in the doing that this is a noble task. Woodrow Wilson believed it was better than being the president of the United States. This is a worthy, a noble task. Be worthy of it if you would be an elder. Let us pray.